Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully, joining us today for a second time, the rare repeat guest, the rare person who's willing to return to The Tully Show to talk about his recently released Netflix series, The G Word. Hello, and welcome back, Adam Conover. Hello, thank you so much for having me, man. Thank you. It's great you. to be here. I, yes. I also have a partially obstructive view of the Hollywood sign for my house, just saying. I mean, I can see, if, if I stand on my tippy toes, I can see all of the letters. I don't know if you got, I don't know if you got all nine of them, Adam. It's really good. You bring a date over there and you're like, it's, it's so beautiful at night. Just come look. And then you just have to st stand right here. Stand right yes. here and just up a little, up mm. to the left. You see? You, there, now you can see the H. And, uh, and who who left this step stool here? <laughs> is what I often say. Yeah. So, Adam, you got this new show, and mm -hmm. I, I did a little bit of research before you came by. The AV Club said in their headline, Adam ruins the government in new Netflix show. That's totally exactly what this is, correct? Uh, I wouldn't say so. No, 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 no. So. <laughs> I, I, I'm joking. That's sort of, I think people would assume that you just okay. take your sledgehammer to whatever yeah. you set your sights on. It's a little bit more nuanced this time around, yeah? Yeah, well, this is a show where we meant to investigate all the things the government does to affect your life, both good and bad. Um, and so we are very critical of uh, the government quite a lot. Uh, we also talk a lot about, you know, institutions, agencies, pieces of infrastructure that make your life possible that you might not be aware about that other people are trying to destroy. And so I suppose you would say we ruin them. But, you know, look, it's people. People remember the catchphrase from the old show. And they want to keep using it. And who am I to tell them not to? You know, when you coin a catchphrase, you just whenever any whenever anybody says it back to you, you just got to say thank you and God bless that you remember it at all. So you know, very very happy for for people to continue to use the ruin name, even though it's not technically a part of the show. It's better to be known for something that's slightly off, maybe, than to be not known at all. <laughs> I, I noticed. Uh, uh, on your Twitter feed as recently as, I don't know, a, a week or so ago, the Alton Brown thing is still an ever-present oh, yeah. thing in my life. Oh, constantly. I mean, I, I just made a joke out of it. People are just constant, And the joke I was making to the person was, people are always like, has anyone ever told <laughs> no. you that you look Alton Brown? Yeah, no, uh, yes, I hear it every day. Every single day of my life I hear it. Yeah, of course. Why, why would you, if you thought of it, why wouldn't you think a million other people thought of it? You literally think you're the only other person, you're the only person on earth who has both seen an episode of Good Eats and seen an episode of my show. Now, by the way, I don't fucking look that much like Elton Brown, all right? We have, we're both blonde, all right? We wear glasses. We, we don't have dissimilarly shaped heads, but this man is nearly bald. You know, look at look what's on top of my head. There's a big difference here. All right. He's also much older than me. You know, it's it's he, he I got no problem with Alton Brown. I think he's a wonderful broadcaster. But, you know, it doesn't help anybody to constantly hear that we look like each other. You know, I don't know if he hears it as often as I do that. People are like, do you know you look like Adam Conover? Um, I'm unsure. I think you have a yeah you have a, you have a proud quaff. That's definitely <laughs> one you. area of difference. So let's talk about the making of this show, the conception of this show, the lead up, yeah. and then we'll segue into the content and its implications. Sure. So I went in cold. I enjoyed your last show. You popped up on my Netflix feed. I just clicked play, which is a great way to go into this because then you're completely surprised by the person who shows up face to face with you in the first scene. The, yeah. uh, the about the most exciting surprise uh, cameo you could possibly get. The show is executive pro uh, produced by Barack and Michelle Obama. And I understand Correct. that you, you pitched to them. They will talk about where the, the, the content, you know, the, the basic concept for the show came from, but basically they're making a show and they want the, the guy or the girl who's going to execute that, you 
pitch to both of them? Just Barack, you start with the daughters and work your way up. <laughs> I'll tell you how the show came about. All yeah. right. Um, uh, they had option. They have a production company. They have a big deal with Netflix. They had option the Michael Lewis book. Michael Lewis is a wonderful journalist, uh, one of our very best journalists in this country. Uh, this book called The Fifth Risk. I had read the book like in, you know, late uh, 2018. I had read this this book, a wonderful book about how the government works and, you know, his own investigation. I was like, it's a terrific book. But like six months later, I get a call from my manager saying, hey, Barack and Michelle Obama have optioned this book. You know, they want to know if you want to pitch on it. Not them, but the people who work for the people who work for them. You know, their company is is reaching out to me. And I said, well, of course, I'd like to pitch on that. I, you know, Adam ruins everything. It recently been canceled because of the AT&T Time Warner merger, um, which I've talked about elsewhere. You know, that that uh, killed my show as it killed so many others. Uh, you're, you're cocking your head. Have you not heard this story? No, I, I, I don't want to make you repeat something you said you've already told many other times. But as a fan, no, 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 as no. a fan of the I, show, I don't know the story. Oh, I'm, I'm happy to tell it. So, you know, we did, uh, uh, you know, 65 episodes on True TV. We, we you know, made that show for four or five years. Very popular show. Second most popular show on the network on, on True TV. Um, uh, but uh, around, let's see, when was this? Like 20, yeah, like around 2018, as we were working on the last season of the show, AT&T buys Time Warner. Um, and, you know, this is going on the whole time we're working on the season, you know, that like it's in the news, in the trades, um, the executives are talking to us about it. Everyone's waiting to see what happens. When the merger finally closes, um, they fired literally everyone who worked at True TV. They laid off a hundred people, everyone from literally the president of the network all the way down to, you know, the office managers on the, I'd been to like, there was a whole floor of people in New York City who worked at True TV. Um, and I would go into the office, hello everyone, go talk to the marketing department, talk to the people who cut the promos, you know, et cetera. They had a, their own programming department. It was a TV network, right? With a whole bunch of people. They lay off the entire network and then they say, okay, well, True TV, that cable space is gonna now just be run by the people who run TBS and TNT. Um, so we're just, you know, like merging it underneath those things. And uh, once they did that, they then started canceling shows to cut costs and they canceled almost every show on the network. Um, and this was starting to go down around when we were finishing up the season. And so we said, okay, we think we see the writing on the wall here. We, we wrote a season finale that was also a series finale. Um, and uh, they eventually, you know, the new boss, the new president finally called me and said, yeah, we're not picking it up for another season. And I was like, yeah, I figured that out, <laughs> that, that that you weren't going to. But literally, you know, the only thing that's on True TV now, you know, it used to be a thriving cable channel. They had, you know, a, a dozen different original shows um, with, you know, Amy Sedaris and, uh, you know, all these incredible, Michael Carbonaro had a show and um, Bobcat Goldthwaite had a show. And, you know, it was a, it was a competitor with Comedy Central. And uh, they, after the merger, they just like killed the entire network. And now it just airs nothing but Impractical Jokers reruns. And occasionally new episodes of Impractical Jokers. But it's like one of those things where, you know, now MTV only airs ridiculousness. Yes, that's what I was um, going to say. Precisely. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's the sad death of cable. Um, but it didn't have to die that way. It was because of these <laughs> these corporate mergers. I mean, I mean, Comedy Central's Viacom, and it's this own, whole other own clusterfuck with Sumner Redstone being like a senile old, you know, like dying man, and these executives just running the place into the ground. How dare you? Uh, He's while. never been better. <laughs> <laughs> just look is at he the dead man. yet, or is he just? He's the crypt keeper. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so, so uh, you know, like I said, it was a profitable show for the network, but it's a big part of why I'm very vocal about mergers being bad for not just the media industry, but all industries, because this is what happens uh, when when mergers happen. Um, so uh, that Adam Ruins Everything was canceled for that reason. I'm looking for uh, new uh, shows to, to go work on. I got a call from my manager. Hey, do you want to go pitch uh, to Barack and Michelle Obama's company? I said, well, of course, the book is incredible. I would love to do a show about the government. You know, I, I look for stories wherever I'm going to find them, uh, wherever there's a story I can tell that's going to be interesting and revelatory to the audience and uh, you know, blow their minds. And having read the Michael Lewis book, I knew that the government was full of those stories. And so I went and pitched, hey, I will use my investigative comedy techniques um, to tell the story of the United States government. And, you know, they had no other ideas that they liked, so they went with mine. Um, and I made very clear when I started, just because this is always the next question, um, you know, when we actually got going, that 
uh, I needed editor editorial independence because the audience is smart. The audience knows if I, if I never addressed it and they just watch the show and then, then at the end they say, executive, executive produced by Barack and Michelle Obama, they're going to know something. They're going to be like, hold on a second. Is Adam taking marching orders from a former president here in this show about the government? So I made very clear I had to tell the stories I was interested in telling and not be advancing the Obama party line. They granted that. And then we also did that scene at the beginning to sort of show the audience, okay, this is our working relationship on the show. Two more quick things on them before we get into the content of the show. As many, as many slow things as you want. I'm an open book to you, Mike. Tell me one surprising, or I, I'm, you know, I have no proximity to greatness or to the, the, <laughs> the, the, the halls of greatness or power. So whenever I know somebody who has had access, I, I want to get a little piece of it. Tell me one surprising or noteworthy thing about Barack Obama, or just the unusual reality that he inhabits that you, something that, sh something you come away and you go to your friend, you know, actually, when I was talking to Obama, the crazy thing about his life is ellipse. Oh, sure. I have an e uh, easy answer to that, which is that he, he lives his life as though he's still president. Um, and uh, I understand why he does, but I also think it's a choice to do so. Um, like George W. Bush isn't like, let, let, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about before I make that comparison. Um, so, uh, you know, when we were, whenever we were, uh, you know, at one point during the pitch process, we almost exclusively work with the people who work for the people who work for him, right? But, uh, you know, he, he would be notified about the show once every six months and get an update. So, so we, you know, we would have to write, for instance, we did our whole pitch. It's like, hey, write a one pager for Barack Obama to read that just summarizes the show. And we need that to get to him by Friday because it's going to go in his weekend briefing book. Ah his briefing binder that he reads every weekend. That's a president thing. Yeah. You know, they like get stuff into a big sheaf of papers for the president and then he reads it really quick. He still does the briefing book. You know, George W. Bush is not doing the briefing book. George W. Bush is reading like comic books in the bathtub, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, uh, and an, another example of this is like his, his movements are as scripted as a president. So we shot that opening scene that you watched in his actual office, in his real office building. And uh, the amount of logistics that went into just us getting into the office building, we had our whole crew, a small crew, you know, maybe let's say 10 people. Um, and we're down in the lobby and his handlers are like, okay, so it, right now it's, it's about 1.30 at, at 1.42, we're gonna go to the elevator. When we get to the elevator, everyone, don't say a word, you're all gonna make a left and you're gonna go into a room right there, that'll be your staging area and you'll start setting up there. Um, five minutes after that, you'll be able to go into the office and start setting up the lights. Adam, you will move to the hallway at 157. Uh, uh, B.O. will come down the hallway and you will shake hands. You will greet him there and then you will head into the office. It's like that. And, and, and that's all happening because he is elsewhere on the same floor and they don't want him to be disturbed, you know, because they know exactly the other meeting he's having or whatever it is he's doing. And it's like all super scripted in that way, which is, again, that's what it would be like if you were in the White House, right? Um, but he's still living his life that way to the extent that here's a funny story before mm -hmm. you ask a question. Yes. Funny story. There was a point where he was like going to leave and we were going to have access to the rest of the building where we needed to shoot some stuff. But he, I guess, needed to stay. He was like, well, let me get a coffee or whatever. He's still hanging around. And so it, we've been drilled into a, us like do not, you know, interact with him in any other areas. But there's a moment where I, I only heard about this happening. I wasn't there for it. But one of our PAs, this really funny dude from Atlanta named Evans was like, in the hallway somehow at the same moment Barack Obama was like turned around a corner and saw him and literally went oh shit and like turned around and ran the other way because it had been drilled into us do not do, do not like be seen or heard in the same area as him now to me all of this is a little bit silly it's like you don't really need to live your life this way in my opinion but I think that you know having been president he maybe got used to the amount of infrastructure and just sort of maintained it yeah in his case once you get briefed you never go back um, now, they don't actually call him B.O. Uh, no, not in person. In email, sometimes they do. Um, there is a weird thing where... That's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it'll be B.O. and M.O. or whatever. Uh, it, it's because if you... There's sort of a thing. If you, Imagine you're working for him, right? And you need to write an email about him to somebody else, somebody like me. Um, so you're someone who, t who talks to him like, you know, once every couple weeks or, you know, you're, you're like in his org chart, but you're talking to somebody like me. Well, what do you call him? Mr. Obama sounds too formal. People don't really use Mr. anymore. Barack is too casual. 
right? He doesn't have a title. You can't just say the president like you would when he was in the White House. It's kind of weird just to say the president, the president, the president. They do it on the when he goes on the news. They continue to call him the president, but it's like I don't know. It's a little odd. It's awesome. So, so what do they what do they call him? And so they'll they'll say. Uh, you know, B.O. or they'll say the principles, meaning the, the sure. you know, the, the the main people or they'll say uh, the boss is another one. Oh, the boss, you know, uh, has said X, Y, Z. You know what the boss often says? They'll do that. Um, and it's just sort of a funny, like little linguistic thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I just sort of try to when I'm in that, I sort of laugh at it and say, what is obama want to do i mean just you can say his name <laughs> yeah but but it's very you know uh, it's interesting because it, we're we're used to working in media in the entertainment industry working with a lot of people formerly of politics and they have all these weird behaviors that you know uh, uh i don't really relate to or understand but it was interesting to interact with them one thing that struck me uh, as somebody who watched the true tv show and now you're on the more lawless streaming platform <laughs> of netflix you work fairly blue on this show yeah did you ever get any notes from the principals about your potty mouth no i mean i i uh it, it, nothing other than normal network notes you know just sort of like weird like how much do you want to be swearing on the show things like that i'm like i don't know as much as i do i'm a comic that's i swear on the show about as much as i do in real life right you know um so yeah no there's nothing now I, i'm actually surprised by how often people bring that up because in my experience, you know, I'm like, people are pretty inured to potty language at this point, you know. Uh, pe people don't generally bat an eye at it. I think we're less prudish about that than we used to. But I did get a lot of people commenting like, oh, Adam Conover gets to, gets to swear on his new show. Oh, cool. And then, you know, what I wish I had thought about ahead of time is that, you know, I've, I've gotten teachers saying, hey, I want to show this in my class, mm. but there are swears in it. And is there a clean version? And I'm like, unfortunately there's not. And I, I asked Netflix to create one and they said, no. So you'll just have to like, you know, get the angry phone calls from parents, I guess. But you know, to me, it's also like, look, swears are kind of how you tell adults that this is an adult show. Like grownups are just like, Oh fuck. Yeah, man. I love to hear the word fuck. And you know, that's, that's part of it. So, uh, but yeah, no, never got any static about it. It was just a choice that, that we made because that's how I talk. I was just saying it on set, and I was like, maybe we'll bleep it later, and then we just never got around to it. So, as you mentioned, the show is loosely based on this Michael Lewis book, The Fifth Risk, which is, uh, I have not read the book, but I gather, essentially says one of the great threats to our democracy, to our, our the America's government, is just sort of if we neglect all of the institutions that we've built up, the atrophy will have consequences. Duh. The book was timed well, it was it was about the Trump presidency, mm -hmm. not not about what was going yeah. on in the Oval Office. But this were a direct. This is what Trump wanted. This was this was exactly what was supposed to be happening in his White House. It's a book that's anti-Trump. You can't really put it any other way. Optioned by the Obamas. That's a very spicy backstory for something yeah. like this. Yet the series is. I I watched like two thirds of it. Decidedly apolitical. I assume yeah. that that was not an accident. Well. Uh, yeah, it was not an accident, but it was it was our choice not to do it. I was not interested in doing a, a Trump show sure. because uh, I mean, watch The Daily Show any night, watch Colbert like people were doing it every single night. There's no value in me doing more, you know, Trump related comedy. We do talk about the Trump administration during the show. Uh, in, in, we do an episode called Disease where we talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and what the government fucked up there. And we do talk about. Uh, the Trump administration and the fact that, you know, our pandemic fighting systems, uh, our agencies were disemboweled by the Trump administration. But we also go on to point out that that sort of you know, defunding of our public health apparatus was bipartisan and it took place over the last 30 years. Democrats and Republicans both did it. I mean, here in California, um, you know, Governor Schwarzenegger, when he had a big surplus, he created an entire pandemic fighting program. He, he, he got, he like bought like a mobile hospital and like all of this, you know, basically like emergency pandemic gear that he was like, in case we need it, a pandemic might come. And then when Jerry Brown, a Democrat took over and there was a budget shortfall, he cut that entire program. And that was like less than a decade before COVID-19. So this has been like a bipartisan, you know, effort to, uh, you know, defund and, and, and diminish the federal government. Um, now Trump is part of that story and we mentioned him to that extent, but like, you know, it, it's just the, the Michael Lewis's book has the Trump pieces, 
where he got exclusive interviews with people who are in the room when Trump found out he won and, you know, drama between Chris Christie and whoever the hell else, you know, that part of the book's fascinating. He's a great reporter. The other half of the book is like, holy shit, do you know what the National Weather Service does? Do you have any, do, most people have no idea about the fact that this agency makes life on this, in this country possible. And yet a, you know, a, a corporate entity is trying to destroy them. Um, and I was like, that's the story for me. And that's the half of the book that we based our show on. Right. When we talk about government, we all sort of become a little bit infantile and engage in a little bit of magical thinking. And I think I'm even guilty of it. We often forget the government is just it's people. It's, yeah. You know what I mean? They're not they're they're not demigods or automatons or or and of course people have agendas and you know people can be capable of evil therefore the evil yeah. the government can be capable of evil but in a world that I, I find I I feel like I grew up in a world of very competent adults people who like knew how to balance a checkbook and you know change their own oil what what have you and I see less and less in that among my own peers in a world that to me seems like it's becoming scarily short on competent adults at least what you chose to show on your show you seem to have been encountering very competent grown-ups left oh, yeah. and right that's good yes a big part of the show the intention of it was to and and the emotion that we're trying to give you on the show is something called competency porn <laughs> this is the idea right. that you know it's fun to watch people be really fucking good at their jobs um, and that was, uh, you know, uh, one of the stories that we wanted to tell. So we go, you know, through fly through a hurricane with the folks from, uh, you know, the Air Force's hurricane hunters and visit the National Hurricane Center to see how they analyze that data. We uh, go on a ride along with the people from the FDIC as they shut down a failed bank like these are these are people who are dedicated public servants who really do give a shit about their mission. Like you, I, I sat there and I talked to them. I'm like, they actually care about the mission. Yes, they, they love the paycheck. You know what I mean? I'm sure they love the good government health insurance. And we talked to other people on the show who I'm sure that's why they're in it too. You know, we talked to folks from the military. We talked to meat inspectors from the FDA or the, sorry, the USDA who are, who are, you know, they care about the mission, but they're also like, look, this is, this gets me out of my hometown. You know what I mean? This, this means I can, uh, you know, I get a pension and I, and I can put my kids through college. Um, but a lot of these people are also there because they just genuinely give a shit and they take so much pride in their work. And that is such a wonderful thing to show people um, and that that is something that exists in our government. And that that's an essential part of it. Like the people at the FDIC, they could all make a lot more money working for a bank, a lot more money. But instead, they get to work for the bank regulator and they get to make sure that people's money doesn't disappear from the bank. Um, and they're really proud of that mission. And we get to see them do their work. Now, we also talk about government agencies that do bad jobs, <laughs> right? And the ones that really fuck up. Um, and we talk about why that is and how they need to be improved. But we also tell the stories of success too, so that we can like remind ourselves, yeah, this is, this is real, you know? We can, we can do it, we can do it if we put our minds to it. I had never given uh, AccuWeather a moment's thought it's mm -hmm. just it's just a thing it's sort of mm -hmm. like the brand name that your local weather guy with the weird plastic surgery and dye job throws around <laughs> that seems to stamp a little bit more credibility on whatever they're yeah, the saying AccuWeather 5000 Ex exactly yeah. yeah well oh AccuWeather said it's gonna snow I better bring uh, some galoshes is the mm -hmm. kind of thing that you think yet yeah, they are perhaps the most villainous entity that came up, <laughs> at least in the episodes that I watched. Yes. Can you explain why that might be? Yeah, so AccuWeather, all right, so let, let, me, get, let me start here. Mm -hmm. uh, the National Weather Service is a government agency. It's under NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric uh, Agency. And uh, the National Weather Service is the, uh, the original source of every weather forecast you will ever read. They have hundreds of weather observation posts all across the country. They employ thousands of weather scientists who work at those places. And those weather scientists are constantly 
A, publishing the data that they receive, and B, chewing it up and making forecasts out of it. And so you can go right now to weather.gov. You'll see a government website. It's not very flashy. It's a little bit old school of a website. But you can go check out like literally just the, the readings that come directly from that observation post. Or you can go read a, a long-form forecast that like that meteorologist has like written for your area. Hey, tomorrow we're going to see this or that, et cetera, et cetera. And those forecasts are used by everybody. They're used by air traffic controllers and pilots who, you know, literally planes could not take off if we didn't have accurate weather forecasts. They're used by ships at sea. They're used by, um, you know, uh, large organizations like universities or, you know, whatever. Think of any large organization that might need to know the weather. And of course, they're used by media outlets who take that data and then broadcast it to the public. Sometimes those media outlets will add a little sprinkle of their own analysis, as we say on the show. Um, you know, they will take the original data and they'll and they'll run it through their own computer model too, right? Or they'll they have a meteorologist who's like saying, okay, here's the National Weather Service says, but here's how I'd put it, right? But without the National Weather Service, your local weather station would have no forecast to give it all because they don't, you know, your local weather station doesn't have the resources to build those hundreds of weather observation posts. And neither do our large national weather media companies, which are AccuWeather and the Weather Channel are two of the biggest. There's a couple others, but those are the big ones. Um, uh, you know, they, they do have, they do a little bit of science themselves, but like, you know, 95% of what they are broadcasting is coming from the National Weather Service. Um, and they get all that data for free. So the, um, the analogy we use on the show is that this is sort of like a private company that is bottling tap water and selling it. You know, like there's nothing wrong with bottling tap water and selling it. I mean, it's maybe not great from an environmental perspective. We're, we're literally just talking about tap water. But it's like, look, do what you want. That's, it's, it's free for the public to use. So if you want to build a business off of that, private, off that public data, go for it. Right? It's, it makes everything better for everybody. Um, but AccuWeather in recent years has seen the National Weather Service as their competition. Um, they don't want the National Weather Service to be able to communicate with the public directly. Um, they instead want to be the only source for weather predictions for the public. So they have lobbied for decades to try to prevent the National Weather Service from, from communicating with the public. So um, the CEO of AccuWeather has gotten himself on different uh, you know, committees that oversee the National Weather Service. And he was actually able to prevent the National Weather Service from uh, creating a free public app. The National Weather Service is like, okay, people are getting their weather information from the internet. We should make an app so we can, people can download it and we can send them weather alerts and shit. And NOAA, sorry, not NOAA, AccuWeather literally prevented them from doing that. Um, and as a result, there is no app. Uh, and uh, uh, Barry Myers, we, we actually don't go into a great deal detail about this on the show because it didn't end up happening. But Barry Myers was actually Trump's appointee to run NOAA, to like oversee the National Weather Service. The CEO of AccuWeather, this guy who's dedicated his life to destroying the National Weather Service, Trump wanted to appoint him to run it. Now that appointment didn't end up going through because I think even, you know, there were 10 Republicans at least who were like, this is a very bad idea because they understand how important the National Weather Service is. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the point is that they've been trying to like, uh, you know, disembowel the National Weather Service for decades, even though they have built their entire business on the free data uh, that they get from it. And their real goal is to make you pay a second time for the data you're already paying for. Your tax dollars are paying for the forecast. You can go to weather.gov and you can get them. It's awesome. You know, it, it feels wonderful. I really encourage everybody to do it. But AccuWeather doesn't want you to be able to do that. AccuWeather wants you to have to go to AccuWeather instead and go to their website that they have ads on, or they want you to pay for their premium weather service. And that's where things get really nefarious because, um, you know, AccuWeather actually has in the past only told premium subscribers about weather disasters. So, uh, look, one of the most important things the National Weather Service does is they tell you there's a tornado warning, there's a tornado on the way, right? Or there's flooding, et cetera. If you go to you know, your, your, your local National Weather Service office on Twitter, ours is in Oxnard here in Los Angeles, or wherever you are, you can go look it up. You will see incredibly clear extreme weather alerts. They will say, stay off the road because of flooding, et cetera. Um, that's like one of the main purposes of the National Weather Service. AccuWeather in their universe, you only get that data if you can pay. And there's actually, uh, this actually happened in 2015 in I believe Moore, Oklahoma, there was a tornado coming to hit the town and they only alerted their paying customers to the threat. Um, so 
uh, that is what it's at stake if we allow these private businesses to undermine our you know, public institutions that are actually producing the data that we all desperately need. Yeah, I mean, the word, you know, dystopian gets thrown around a lot. That seems like something from uh, a parody of, uh, of, a, of a dark, not, not, maybe not idiocracy grade, but darn near close yeah. to it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the, it's easy to have this simplistic conception that um, Republican presidents are warmongers and, you know, the Democrats are the limp-wristed doves. And yet, as most people <laughs> who are paying attention to things no uh, we continued for example to uh to bomb people we've been bombing people through all the presidents basically in our lifetime to a greater or lesser degree and i think if i could sit down with barack obama and be like seriously dude why explain why you bombed people that 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 would be something an opportunity i would really cherish you essentially had that opportunity right mm-hmm yeah, I mean, we talk about on the show, uh, we talk about drone strikes, which are mm -hmm. one of the major stains on his administration. Um, the fact that, you know, uh, the U.S. drone fleet increased tenfold and was used to, you know, bomb many people, including thousands of civilians um, in the Middle East and elsewhere around the world. And uh, we did a segment on that because it came naturally out of an episode that we were doing called The Future about technology and, and you know, what our governments, our government has, inc has invented all these incredible technologies. Unfortunately, it always invents them for the purposes of warfare. And why is that? You know, what are the results of that? Um, and uh, yeah, we, we did that segment. And that, that to me is, uh, if people are cynical about the show, you know, oh, I, I bet Adam Conover couldn't really tell the truth because he's working with Barack Obama. I, I hope they check out that segment because that's one that, uh, you know, I think flies in the face of that cynicism that like they did, in fact, give us the room to tell the stories as we saw fit to tell them. You bring up the issue of um, government ambition and the easiest uh, the easiest place to start with that is putting a man on the moon. It really is. Mm -hmm. It cannot be overstated that the what the Wright brothers got off the ground in a paper airplane for 20 seconds in like 1920 and 40 years later uh Stan yeah. Stanley Kubrick filmed a very convincing <laughs> facsimile of what it would look like if a man actually landed on we actually the moon. did an entire Adam ruins everything episode about why it would have been impossible it would uh -huh. have been a harder to fake the moon landing than it would have been to do it <laughs> actually, in real life put somebody in 1960, whatever. So yes. the issue of, um, but, of, of government but. ambition, I, I find myself wondering, I'm not a big uh, astronomy person and I'm struggling to be quite as excited about the James Webb telescope as I know I ought to be, <laughs> but I do understand. I'm willing to accept that it's an amazing, astounding accomplishment. I see our planet going up in flames and i wonder why are we not putting the same amount of effort and money and expertise that we put into the moon landing that we put into the james webb telescope fusion to me seems like our best bet to save the world in terms of ambitious mm. projects that our government can and perhaps should be working on are we working on a big thing that could actually change uh, 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 affect climate change for the better because recycling isn't going to get it done? Well, a very, that's a very good question. Uh, so I think that we have had a decline in our belief that government can do big things. That's one of the theses of, of our episode, The Future. Um, and I think that, yeah, what our, our belief that the government could put could put someone on the moon. Um, I don't think that we have that same confidence that we did. I think that when, you know, Joe Biden goes out and says we're going to cure cancer or we're going to solve climate change, people go, yeah, right, whatever. The government can't do anything. Um, I think, though, that we have too much of a desire to want to see one big project when 10,000 smaller projects will do the same work more importantly. So one of the things, actually, something we wanted to show on the show but we couldn't, um, was the Department of Energy's uh, work on uh, green technology. Uh, the reason we couldn't show it was we, we wanted to go visit, I'm blanking on the name of the laboratory, but there is a um, gigantic clean energy laboratory that the Department of Energy and other departments fund that is working on stuff like 
you know, solar panels that I think they literally said on the phone to us that, you know, you could print out a solar panel from like literally a printer, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Things that are like really transformative to bring down the cost of renewable energy and et cetera, um, cleaner fuel sources, et cetera, et cetera. We were not able to visit because they had very strict COVID protocols at that location. So we couldn't end up going. Um, but, uh, you know, the government, it's government investment that has brought down uh, the price of renewable energy as far as it has already. Um, it's government investment that means we have electric cars like Tesla. You know, Tesla got started with a with a loan from the government. Um, it is uh, now those aren't big flashy programs, right? That's not that's not fusion. Um, but those are like the kinds of investments we need to be making. And the government is the only organization making them. You know, for every time Bill Gates or whoever goes out and says, I'm going to devote a billion dollars to this. The government is putting in like 500 billion um, in, in programs that you've never heard of that like only an accountant could add up because there's so many of them all over the place. Um, so that's really important and really powerful. But it's also true that the government is putting even more resources into research on how to kill people better. And that's what we criticize in that episode, that uh, maybe we don't need to spend so much money on figuring out how to build better blastier weapons and robot armies and things like that. Um, and autonomous, you know, so like soldier robots, which are literally a thing that they are working on and that we almost got to see. But they pulled the plug at DARPA before, before we were able to go see them. Um, Instead of investing in those things, we could invest even more in renewable technologies, etc. Uh, another example of this, though, by the way, is the NIH, which is the source of, we also go profile, the source of some of the most important medical research in human history. Uh, and we go visit them and see their work. And they do, they're doing incredible work to, uh, you know, cure sickle cell disease and all these other diseases. Um, and this, this is research that no private company would ever do. So I, I do think it's happening. All right, you are not an expert on the U.S. government, but you're far closer to one now than many of us will ever be. You're not an yeah. expert on international governments, I will grant you. But I'm just curious. I'm not an expert on, on anything. I'm a comedian who <laughs> likes to read, you know, and I talk to experts, and I'm good at turning what experts say into something intelligible for the audience and with a couple jokes. So, That's what I do. So translate your sense of the answer to the following question. It's so easy to talk about how incompetent and evil or, you know, some combination of both the, the government is. I am led to believe, let's take Italy as an example. It, it, I mean, I do feel like our political system is coming closer and closer to resembling Italy's famously chaotic and dysfunctional government with every passing day. But how, in terms of effectiveness and purity of purpose, how would you guess the U? Obviously, the U.S. government is far more powerful and most, you know, therefore able to be more effective. But in in maximizing our tax dollars to do things well and with good intentions, how do you think the U.S. government stacks up to other first world governments? Well, I. I... Not well would be my answer. I think that the United States government, uniquely among uh, many governments, is you know one of the most captured by capitalism, the most subject to you know the whims of of big money uh, telling it what to do than most other governments. Sadly, uh, because we are the the richest nation in the world, we have you know the, the the richest corporations, and those corporations are working very very hard to look out for their interests, and we've had unfortunately you know, a 40-year a project of disemboweling our faith in our government and, and taking the... I've used the word disembowel like four or five times in this podcast, and I'm sorry for that. It's disgusting. I love it. Lean but, into it. Okay. They, they're disemboweling the government, Mike. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's been that's been a dedicated project, um, and as a result, you know, that's, that's why we don't have things like universal health care in America. That's why we you know, don't uh, have social safety net programs, et cetera. The, the basic functions that a government provides, ours does not provide in many ways. It does, you know, instead it, it's propping up corporations and it's bombing people overseas, unfortunately. Um, in terms of how well it ranks across all governments worldwide, I would think it, it probably does better than a lot. I, however, I don't think there's any such thing as like a perfect government. Uh, one of our... One of the things that I realized here is, first of all, the United States government is so big that it's impossible to say any one thing about it. Uh, so the National Weather Service is incredible. 
everybody there is great. And structurally, it is well set up for success. It is very independent. It doesn't really get fucked with by the legislators. You know, Trump tried to fuck with it and failed when he you know, tried to say the hurricane's actually going this way. And, you know, he's going to fire everybody who disagrees. You know, nobody, heads did not roll. The National Weather Service was fine because it's institutionally protected. You know, and that's, that's the sort of thing you can go visit and be proud of. Um, and by the way, it is, there's certainly other National Weather Services around the world, but like we've got a crown jewel of one, you know. Uh, we're, we're providing data that everybody else needs to fight climate change and et cetera. You know, we're the, we're the gold standard. Uh, so there are all those examples. Uh, what I try to, what I hope that people will take away from this show is that those examples are evidence of what we can do when we put our mind to it. Um, and that, you know, we'll, we'll incline people towards saying, yes, let's put in more programs like that and let's get rid of the programs that aren't working. And let, but, but let's be like bold and ambitious about what we can. I mean, some of the things that we talk about on the show, in, you know, sending inspectors into every meat factory in America who have to be there by as a matter of federal law on the line every single day, checking the meat, they can stop work at the factory whenever they see something wrong. That's a huge intervention. If you propose that now, uh, you'd be laughed out of Congress except that we did it and it worked well. The FDIC, we make all the banks pay a tax into this insurance fund uh, that, uh, you know, and we give the government the power to shut the bank down if it is failing and, you know, repossess the bank essentially. A huge intervention. It worked great, right? And it is the only reason the banking system even functions today. And so these are things that we can do again in the future and we should try to put more programs like that in place. Even if we do though, Every government, just like every institution on earth, will be subject to, uh, you know, bad actors, to, to people looking out for themselves rather than out for the public. Whenever we put a public program in place, um, it'll be subject to, you know, uh, the wealthy, the people in power trying to get more than their fair share out of that program, like we saw with PPP loans or, you know, other the other COVID relief programs where all this money was meant to go to the people and too much of it ended up in the hands of people who already had enough and didn't need the help. Um, those are always going to be problems that we always have to be vigilant for because that's the nature of humanity. But uh, we can do it. And if we really keep our eye on the ball and, and are clear about our values and are confident about you know what we can accomplish when we put our mind to it, there's a lot more that we can do. It's, it's sort of the, the same question in a different way. But just to wrap this up, I'm curious about how your um, impressions of the government and its effectiveness may have evolved based on actually coming face to face with a, you know, a bunch of different departments and people within it. When it comes to solving big problems, we really only sort of have like three choices. Like when it comes to healthcare, I can go dig up some herbs in my backyard and see if I can cure my cancer, right? Or we or then we have the free market where companies can pop up to try to sell me products or the government can try to help us solve uh, big problems or tackle big issues in our lives. The ills of the free market need no explanation. And yet when people say, uh, oh, man, when you see how the government runs the DMV and, and, uh, and, and the post office, I'm supposed to trust these guys with health care. That is also a very compelling argument. So it seems like we can make a really, really good, good case for how shitty both sides are based on what you have seen. Who would you rather see taking on big issues? Take healthcare as as an as an example, the government or the free market. Well, first of all, don't slag off on the post office too much because they do incredible work. Uh, if you you know, and by the way, most people have a favorable impression of the post office. Uh, if you've had a bad experience at the post office, it's probably because you went you had to wait in line too long. And the reason you had to wait in line too long is that they've been cutting the budget of the post office and they've not been able to have enough people back there, you know, taking taking orders. But you also know, like, you know, let's be I was talking to a friend who were at the same bank and the bank doesn't have branches, you know, in like close by. And I was like, yeah, do you feel good about mailing your checks, you know, into deposit? Um, like, what if the check gets lost? And my friend goes, never happens, never happens. Like you put you put something in the mail. And you know it's going to get there, right? When was the last time you put a letter in the mailbox and it did not arrive at all? Uh, almost never. Now, things get stolen off your stoop, right? Um, but I, I mean, actually, this is a very good example because look at UPS and FedEx, right? Do people uh, ask anyone in America, do you have a better time with UPS and FedEx than you do with the post office? No way. People fucking hate the UPS driver, right? They said they left a note. I was here. They didn't ring the bell. Right. We've all had that experience. So 
you know, the idea that, you know, the private businesses are somehow naturally better at it than the government simply doesn't hold water. Um, I want to say, though, I think you've established a false, not dichotomy, a, a trichotomy, because you said there were three things that yeah. we could do. Mm -hmm. There's um, always your own backyard, Adam. Those, those are those are a couple those are a couple different options. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of problems that we cannot solve individually at all. That's right. right. Sure. Um, like if we're if we're trying to solve, uh, you know, transportation, that's not something that you can ever do all by yourself. Right. You need to have someone else to build roads or dig tunnels or whatever it is. Yeah. What I do want to say, though, is that those aren't the only ways that we can solve problems. We can also organize with our fellow community members to solve problems um, into community groups. And that's something that Americans used to do a lot more. And we and we now do a lot less. We instead take a we take a more consumerist approach where we say, hey, a company needs to solve this problem or the government needs to solve this problem. I'm going to pay them some money and they're supposed to solve the problem to, for me. Right. As opposed to saying, let's band together in community groups to solve these problems ourselves. Groups like unions, groups like uh, you know, social justice movement groups, groups like, you know, affinity groups of any kind, like people just like working together to literally solve problems or to pressure governments or companies to solve those problems. Um, that And that's a big thing that we talk about in the final episode of the show um, is that kind of local on the ground work. Um, you know, we profile a group that is attempting to solve criminal justice reform in uh, Philadelphia. And this is a group of people who work together to get a new district attorney elected and to then hold that district attorney accountable. And they've created like a durable infrastructure for like, you know, community members can show up and pitch in and be a part of this group. They're not just waiting around for the government to solve problems or demanding that a, that a politician do it. They are like participating and taking part and forcing the changes that they wanna see on the world. Um, so that's something that like we can really do. And what I what I've been the gong I've been trying to beat for people is if you want this country to not be so fucked. Right. Um, people are like, what do I do? Right. What, the country is fucked. What do I do? I voted. Nothing happened. I donated. Nothing happened. What do I do? Like, who's going to come save me? And the message I'm trying to tell people is no one's going to come save you. It's we, we need to like do it ourselves. And so the first step is if there's something that you care about, go out and find a group that you can join. Find something that you can show up to. If you are pissed off about homelessness in your area, go find a group that works on homelessness that you can go volunteer for. Meet other people working on that issue in your area. Find out what the, you know, first of all, you can go help people individually yourself. That's something that I do here in Los Angeles. I work with a group called SELA, Neighborhood Homelessness Coalition. Um, but you can also like be a part of finding out what are the barriers to dealing with homelessness in your area. And how do we, uh, how do we overcome those? You can start showing up to city council meetings and, and you know, giving public testimony and you can, you know, start working with other activists, etc. And once you start doing that, you will be amazed at how big a change you can make in your own community um, by being a part of that. And you will also not have any more time to be depressed about the state of the country because you'll be too busy working on it. Um, I got kind of far afield from your original question, but I did want to make that point. No, no, no. That was very valuable, actually. While you're saying that, I Googled SELA Neighborhood Homeless Coalition because I live here in Los Angeles as well. And I'm always looking for, uh, you know, I used to do volunteering stuff with my kid and then we couldn't for a while. And now I'm trying to figure out how we get back into it. And I go to the website and boom, there you are on the on, <laughs> on, on the homepage. So I think I found. Yeah, I was in I was in a video profiling the, the group. But yeah, we're we're a group. We I've been working with, with them for like three years now. Um, and we go out every Saturday with food and water um, and visit encampments in our neighborhood. Literally, I visit the ones that are in my own neighborhood, just within a half mile radius of my house. And, you know, bring people water, say, hey, else, what, what else do you need right now? We try to connect them with services. We're all volunteers. We're not like, a, you know, a, a service organization. Um, or, you know, a, an official homelessness services provider is what they're called. But we connect people with those services providers. And we, you know, we just like are pitching in. We also have a drop-in center. Uh, we do food and clothing distribution there. Um, and it's been incredibly re rewarding to be a part of. And uh, if it's something that you're interested in, I'm not sure. Oh, you said you live near Culver City, so a little bit far away from you because we're, we're closer to the east side. But, uh, you know, it's it, like it will change your view of the issue forever if you show up one time and meet the folks who are experiencing homelessness and see the real barriers. You know, I'll give you a great example is I was there once and I was manning the clothing station, you know, putting out the clothes that, that people could take. And one of our guests uh, who is experiencing homelessness uh, was going through the clothes. He takes a white shirt and he goes, oh, this is great. I can use this for work. 
He was excited because he found a homeless man. He was excited because he found a clean white shirt he could wear to work. Now, if that happens, I don't think you have the same opinion about homelessness that you had in the past, right? If you're like, oh, these are lazy people. That don't. This guy, this motherfucker has a job, right? And he's living in a tent on the street. So that tells you something about homelessness in Los Angeles to have that experience. Um, but I also start talking to, people, talking to other volunteers and they're like, hey, do you know what the city council office did last week? I'm like, holy shit, really? That, yeah, and they're having a meeting next week where we can go give public comment. Oh shit, let's go do it. Let's go tell these people something. You know what I mean? Um, let's start, let's, we can get someone else elected who's going to do a better job. And we've actually been able to do that here in Los Angeles. So, uh, you know, that sort of participation is like transformative once you start doing it. And there's other groups as well that you can go, you know, any issue under the sun that you care about, there's something that you can join or a group that you could start that could work on it. Do you bristle at, uh, hearing your work described as infotainment? I mean, it's a little cutesy, but I don't mind. I mean, it's info and it's taining. So, yeah. uh, you know, I'll take it. I mean, I do think that that's my, uh, I, I guess I worry about people making that too much of a niche, you know? Um, like, yes, I'm informing people, but the truth is everybody wants to learn. Ever That's my deep belief. Everybody likes to learn. Everybody has curiosity deep inside of them. And if you can provide information in a way that is genuinely entertaining, that people can, can take in at 11 p.m. after they put the kids to bed holding a glass of whiskey in their hand, right, uh, or whatever your cool-down drink is. I don't drink anymore, so a glass of herbal tea. Um, then, uh, you know, they will gravitate towards that media. Um, and it can be as successful and entertaining as, as anything else. And so I, I guess that's my only problem with infotainment. It sounds a little bit close to infomercial, like you're tricking people or something like that. I'm like, no, this is, this is what people want. People want to learn and they want to be entertained at the same time. It's very possible to do both. Well, whatever one cares to call it, uh, I enjoy your work very much, and I'm enjoying the series very much, and everybody can watch it. It is, uh, it's on Netflix as of a couple months ago. All episodes are up there. The G Word Correct. with my guest, Adam Conover. Adam, thank you again. Can I make a plug quick? Oh, please. I'm on tour this summer. Uh, I'm going to be in Boston, Nashville, Arlington, Virginia, right outside of D.C. So if you live in D.C., you can go there, too. Spokane, Washington, Tacoma, Washington, New York City. If you live in or near any of those places, please come see me on tour. I'm doing a brand new hour of stand-up um, all about attention deficit disorder and the attention economy and my own experiences growing up with this disorder. And um, I, I hope people come see it because it's a, a, a great new show, and I love, I love getting out there doing stand-up again. So you can get tickets at adamconover.net. Okay, you do have a website. Good. AdamConover.net. That was my next question. Correct. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you once again. As always, lovely speaking with you. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Tully. 